Hi guys, welcome to another episode of the 6 Minutes Podcast. I promised you guys I was going to do an episode on Calpurnia as the ideal Roman bride. Now, what I'm going to do, because I feel like this is crucial, is introduce the characters we are going to be talking about, like, one by one. They're each going to have their own segment, and then we're going to put it all together and explain how Calpurnia was the ideal Roman bride. We're going to get into Roman marriage traditions um, and just everything in regards to marriage in ancient Rome. It's going to be an interesting episode, so stay tuned. The first person we'll be talking about is Pliny the Younger. So Pliny had many names, but for the sake of this podcast and to make it easier on all of us, we're just going to refer to him as Pliny the Younger. He was born as Gaius Cecilius or Gaius Cecilius Silo or Gaius Plinius Cecilius Secundus. So do you see what I mean by it's going to be easier for us to just refer to him as Pliny the Younger? So he was better known as Pliny the Younger. He was a lawyer, an author and magistrate of ancient Rome and he was raised by his uncle and Pliny the Elder and educated by them as well in things like philosophy and math. Now, he's a very important figure when we study anything in regards to ancient Rome because he was heavily involved in the administrative world of ancient Rome and the politics and pretty much everything else. Like I said, he was a lawyer, an author, and a magistrate. So he was heavily involved in how and learning at least how things functioned in ancient Rome and um, his letters are actually very interesting to read so if you guys do get in uh, you guys do get some free time you should definitely look into his letters it helps you really learn more about the world of ancient Rome their rituals and traditions and just how society functioned in general it's very interesting but Um, Both Pliny the Elder and the Younger were witnesses to the eruption of Vesuvius in 79 AD, in which the former died. Now, Pliny the Younger wrote hundreds of letters, um, of which about 247 survived and are of great historical value, like I said. Um, Some are addressed to reigning emperors or to notables, such as the historian Tacitus, who was also a very important figure in learning about ancient Rome. And Pliny served as an, as an imperial magistrate under Trajan, which re- who reigned from 98 to about 117. Um, and his letters to Trajan provide one of the few surviving records of the relationship between the imperial office and provincial governors. So Pliny rose through a series of civil and military offices, the cursus honorum, and he was a friend of the historian Tacitus and might have employed the biographer Suetonius on his staff. Pliny also came into contact with other well-known men of the period, including philosophers Artemidorus and Euphrates the Stoic during his time in Syria. Just a bit of background on his childhood. He was born in Novum Comum in Como, northern Italy, around 61 AD, as the son of Lucius Cecilius Silo, born there, and his wife, Plinia Marcella, a sister of Pliny the Elder. He was the grandson of Senator and landowner Gaius Cecilius, revered his uncle, Pliny the Elder, who at this time was extremely famous around the Roman Empire, and he provided sketches of how his uncle worked on the Naturalis Historia. 
Silo died at an early age when Pliny was still young, and as a result, the boy probably lived with his mother. His guardian and preceptor in charge of his education was Lucius Virginius Rufus, famed for quelling a revolt against Nero in 68 AD. So Pliny was first tutored at home, and then he went to Rome for further education, where he was taught rhetoric by Quintilian, a great teacher and author, and Nicetus Sacerdos of Smyrna, and it was at this time that Pliny became closer to his uncle Pliny the Elder. When Pliny the Younger was 17 or 18, his uncle Pliny the Elder died attempting to rescue victims of the Vesuvius eruption, and the terms of um, the Elder Pliny's will passed his estate to his nephew. In the same document, the younger Pliny was adopted by his uncle, and as a result, Pliny the Younger changed his name from Gaius Cecilius um, to Gaius Plinius Cecilius Secundus. So I'm just going to leave this part here because we're running out of time and I'll continue in the next um, part of the episode. I'll see you guys there. Stay tuned. So there is some evidence that Pliny did have a sibling. A memorial erected in Como repeats the terms of a will by which the Aedil Lucius Cecilius Silo, son of Lucius, established a fund the interest of which was to buy oil used for soap for the baths of the people of Como. The trustees are apparently named in the inscription L. Cecilius Valens, P. Cecilius Secundus, sons of Lucius, and the Contubernalis Lutula. The word contubernalis describing Lutula is a military term meaning tent mate, which can only mean that she was living with Lucius, not as his wife. The first man mentioned, L. Cecilius Valens, is probably the older son. Pliny the Younger confirms. Um, basically, he confirms that he was a trustee for the largest of my ancestors, and it seems unknown to Pliny the Elder, so Valens' mother was probably not his sister Plinia. Perhaps Valens was Lutula's son from an earlier relationship. Now, this is just speculation based on a few sources that um, have been found, especially the will. I do think it is mostly accurate. It could be accurate, um, but we don't really know. Um, I just want to move on to his marriages and then eventually on to his death and career. So basically, the way we're going to tie this in is that Calpurnia, the woman who we're going to be talking about is the ideal bride, was Pliny's wife and they were very much in love with one another. Um, he actually really adored her and he took pride in his wife. But as you can see, um, in ancient Rome, these men held a lot of power and um, they had to maintain their reputations. So their wives had to be a part of that and their wives had to help in their and I guess maintaining their dignity and their respect and their reputation in Rome um, because people looked up to them uh, and looked at them very highly as well in society. So Pliny married three times. Firstly, when he was very young, about 18, um, to a stepdaughter of Vicious Proculus, uh, who also died at age 37. Now, just to mention, 37 is not a young age to die. At this time, it was considered about the 
like average age to die this time which i know that it's sad but this is the average age 37 was pretty much one of the average ages to die i think the oldest people died at this time was like 42 or something like that which is which was known as being like a very good age to die i know when we think of like death now or like you want to live till you're 80 or like 90 or even 100 but back then it was actually 37 or like early 40s that people would pass away unfortunately so secondly at an unknown date to the daughter of pompeia celerina and thirdly to calpurnia a daughter of calpurnius and granddaughter of calpurnius fabatus of comum and letters survive in which Pliny recorded his last marriage taking place, his attachment to Calpurnia, and his sadness when she miscarried their child. Obviously, also during this time, reproduction was seen as very important. You can see in Roman art and Roman sculpture that women with curvy bodies, well, first of all, women were depicted with curvy bodies because um, they were supposed to be depicted as being very fertile um, women with big hips are representative of fertility so at this time a lot of artists would depict women as being very curvy very curvaceous because you know they believed that the sole purpose of the woman was to reproduce and to reproduce sons who would take uh, the reign and who would um, eventually become as high in power as their fathers and you can see how it is you know Pliny took after his uncle and his father and his grandfather and you know so on so generations and generations of power pretty much passed down to the sons and so for the women it was important to reproduce and it was important for them to be healthy enough to reproduce but we're running out of time and I'll get to the next segment, which is on Calpurnia. See you there. So I know I said I would be discussing the marriage next, but I don't want to skip over or rather eclipse over his career because I do feel like it is important in discussing his marriage to Calpurnia. And I did state before why it was so important. So let's just talk about his career and his letters and some of the writing that he's done in his career so by birth he was of equestrian rank that is a member of the aristocratic order of knights and the lower of the two roman aristocratic orders that monopolized senior and civil senior civil and military offices during the early empire so he was beneath the senatorial order but still powerful enough and his career began at the age of 18 and initially followed a normal equestrian route but unlike most equestrians he achieved entry into the upper order by being elected quaestor i think that's what it's called in his late 20s so Pliny was active in the roman legal system especially in the sphere of the roman centumviral court which dealt with inheritance cases Later, he was a well-known prosecutor and defender at the trials of a series of provincial governs, governors, including Babius Massa, governor of Baetica, and Marius Priscus, governor of Africa, Gaius Cecilius Classicus, governor of Baetica, and most ironically, in light of his later appointment to this province, 
Gaius Julius Bassus and Varenus Rufus, both governors of Bithynia and Pontus. Pliny's career is commonly considered as a summary of the main Roman main Roman public charges, and is the best documented example from this period, offering proof for many aspects of imperial culture. Effectively, Pliny crossed all the principal fields of the organization of the early Roman Empire, and it is an achievement for a man to not have only survived the reigns of several disparate emperors, especially the much detested Domitian, but also to have risen in rank throughout. So because his career is so important, I just want to give a quick timeline of his career summary just to, um, just for you guys to get the idea of what he was doing during what time. So in 81 AD, he was one of the presiding judges in the Centumviral Court. And in 81 AD as well, he was on the Tribunus Militium, basically a staff officer of Legio um, Gallica in Syria, probably for about six months in the 80s not 1980s talking about like 80 AD um, he was the officer of the noble order of knights and later 80s enter he entered the senate in 88 or 89 AD he was a quaestor attached to the emperor's staff 91 AD he was the tribune of the people and in 93 AD he was a praetor 94 to 96 AD he was a perfect prefect of the military treasury and 98 to 100 AD he was prefect of the treasury of Saturn and in 100 AD he was a suffect consul with Cornutus Tertullus 103 AD proprietor, proprietor of Bithynia in 103 and 104 AD he was publicly elected augur in 104 to 106 AD he was superintendent of the banks of the Tiber and 104 to 107 AD he was three times a member of Trajan's Judicial Council and 110 AD finally he was the imperial governor of Bithynia and the Pontus province so I think I'm going to move on to his writings, but because we're running out of time, I'm not going to get into all of it right now. So I think I'm just going to start a new segment on this. I'll see you guys in the next one. So since we discussed his career, I felt like it was important to also discuss his writing. So Pliny penned his first work at age 14. He wrote a tragedy in Greek. Um, it was not uncommon for them to know different languages. Of course, they knew their vernaculars, but they also knew how to write in Latin and also in Greek because it was part of the rhetoric. And um, rhetoric, if I haven't explained it already, is basically teachings in philosophy and mathematics and in things like that, and especially in Latin because that's what the administrative language was during this time, both in ancient Greece and in ancient Rome. So additionally, in the course of his life, he wrote numerous poems, most of which, of course, are lost, and it's very unfortunate that they are. He was also a notable orator, um, though he professed himself a follower of Cicero's. Pliny's prose was more magniloquent, magniloquent, it's like a tongue twister to say when you're trying to say things fast, and less direct than Cicero's. Um, so... Basically, oration was very popular during this time. Um, if you know anything about this period, pretty much any poems that are written were first orated to a mass 
audience and that's how they were spread through oration um they were writing letters but majority of poems and epics that you have in books now were actually oral um performances so pliny's only oration that now survives um is was the one that was pronounced in senate in 100 and is a description of trajan's figure and actions in an adulatory and emphatic form especially contrasting him with the emperor domitian i think i pronounced that correctly it is however a, re- a relevant document that reveals many details about the emperor's actions in several fields of his administrative power such as taxes justice military discipline and commerce Recalling the speech in one of his letters, Pliny shrewdly defines his own motives thusly. And he says, I hoped in the first place to encourage our emperor in his virtues by sincere tribute and secondly to show his successors what path to follow to win the same renown, not by offering instruction but by setting his example before them. To proffer advice on an emperor's duties might be a noble enterprise, but it would be a heavy responsibility verging on insolence, whereas to praise an excellent ruler and thereby shine a beacon on the path posterity should follow would be equally effective without appearing presumptuous. And his largest surviving body of work is his epistolae, his letters, a series of personal missives directed to his friends and associates. These letters are a unique testimony of Roman administrative history and everyday life in the first century AD. Especially noteworthy among the letters are two in which he describes the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in August 79, during which his uncle Pliny the Elder died, and in one which he asked the emperor of instructions regarding official policy concerning Christians. But also among these is um just encounters of his wives of his wives um three wives and especially um descriptions of his wife calpurnia and his pride and like just how much he adored her and admired her so epistles concerning the eruption of mount vesuvius include um the description of the eruption of mount vesuvius approximately 25 years after the event and both were sent in response to the request of his friend the historian tacitus who wanted to know more about pliny the elder's death the two letters have great historical value due to their accurate description of vesuvius's eruption pliny's attention to detail in the letters about vesuvius is so keen that modern volcano volcanologists describe those types of eruptions as plinian eruptions and in regards to the christian religion as the Roman governor of Bithynia Pontus, which is now in modern Turkey, Pliny wrote a letter to Emperor Trajan basically asking for advice on how to deal with the Christians in 112 AD. So he detailed an account of how he conducted trials of suspected Christians who appeared before him as a result of an anonymous accusation and asked for the emperor's guidance on how they should be treated. So basically this is the... Um, contents of those letters and this is what they describe um i'm running out of time again so in this next segment i'll actually get into the marriage of pliny and calpurnia see you there calpurnia has often been described as the model roman bride so this episode is going to analyze the marriage of pliny and calpurnia through pliny's letters and it's going to analyze why she was the ideal young bride. 
Now, the letters are composed during the first century AD and are a testimony of Roman administrative history and everyday life in the first century AD. They're important in not only analyzing administrative history, but also understanding the laws and regulations regarding marriage in ancient Rome. So in order to understand their marriage, we must first discuss Roman marriage. So the idea, the traditional idea that is, that all should marry was an ideology which derived out of and was reinforced by Augustinian law. Young men had the duty of upkeeping their family name while women's duty to the state derived from bearing legitimate children. Now, it was not merely a form of unifying two people, not the concept of marriage we think of today. Now, obviously, while love did grow between couples, as seen within Pliny and Calpurnia's marriage, Roman marriage served the purpose of bearing legal children to take over the, I guess, throne, and um, they would ultimately inherit the estate. But it was also as a um, pretty much economic institution. So Calpurnia's grandfather, Fabatus, would ultimately pass on his properties to Pliny, Calpurnia's husband, since his son was no longer alive. So while discussing Pliny, we discussed that he was in the public image so often. So another important aspect of Roman marriage was reputation. Now Pliny was a lawyer, judge and author, therefore his image did matter to him and his reputation was quite important. So his bride had to reflect um, a positive image and she had to be in the spotlight positively as well um, because it did reflect on him at the end of the day so when a bride resembled her husband he was applauded and even credited in the political life but also he gained more respect now the letters of Pliny the Younger reveal his desire for immortality he longed to be remembered by his peers as a successful lawyer a keen observer of human nature and a successful administrator which is why the reflection of his bride was so important not only to him but to Roman society as well so we discussed that the importance of marriage was for women to bear legitimate children and for those children to inherit the estate when the father passed away so in order for women to fulfill their duties to the state upon marriage women owed the state children these expectations are exemplified by qualities such as purity and health so that the bride could bear healthy children to ultimately strengthen the estate there has been speculation due to Pliny marrying into a family that was not as illustrious as his own. I mean, this is not surprising though, since Pliny has suggested that working in Kamum, he admired their simplistic manner of living and their modesty as well as their loyalty. Interestingly though, Pliny depicts Calpurnia in his own image as being intelligent, devoted, chaste, and pious. There has also been criticism in regards to the fact that she was married at 14 years of age and moving away from her family so young, but he describes her as adjusting well to the role of a bride. So in marriage, parties cannot simply select who they liked. They had to make a digna conditio or suitable selection, which is based on many variables that differed between families, but were mainly based on birth, wealth, and position. A digna conditio is defined as a suitable partner for marriage in accordance to the views of the parents or guardians of the, the prospects. Now, Calpurnia's aunt and Pliny 
sorry, were childhood friends, so she had been vocal in suggesting he marry her niece Calpurnia, emphasizing all the qualities which made her a suitable bride. So in the next little part of the episode, I'm going to get into Calpurnia's earlier life, but I think I'm going to leave it here because I really want to make sure that we sort of go through everything. I don't want to eclipse over anything in the segment here and i don't want to rush anything just because this part is ending so i'll see you guys in the next part of the episode so calpurnia was an orphan her parents passed while she was very very young she was raised within close supervision of her aunt as well as grandfather calpurnius fabatus her paterfamilias important in the approval of the marriage which was a roman ritual um her aunt calpurnia hispula ensured that she didn't see or hear anything that would compromise her character nothing that would deem her impure now calpurnia was wealthy calpurnia's family rather was wealthy um however not as distinguished as pliny's her grandfather was a man of equestrian rank with a military background her grandfather was not a member of senate but he did become magistrate in common the community which they lived in also owned several estates throughout Italy, which he entrusted Pliny to care of in case of his death. So now we're getting into why she was the ideal wife. So Calpurnia fits the ideal image of the Roman bride who was required to be a good housewife, managing the household as well as educated under the guidance of her husband, devoting herself to him. Ideally, a good wife was also viewed as a woman who did not nag her husband, nor was she the ex- nor was she expensive to support, but she was rather submissive to him and did not attempt to dominate him. His letters stress the importance of the background of the bride. While Pliny is introduced to his wife as an ideal match, he chooses his bride based on her background, knowing that she has been brought up well. It is also crucial to note that rather than choosing a bride in Rome, Pliny chose a bride who came from a family he was closely associated with and trusted rather than a bride from Rome. There lays a notion that Pliny admired the small town which Calpurnia came from because he lived a far simpler life and were modest people, qualities he admired in others. So now we come to the question of why did Pliny idealize his wife? Well, she took interest in his activities. When he had to go somewhere, she could not stand to be away from him. She read his works and took great interest in learning from him. She kept record of his works and recited them often or sang them to music. She sent him meals cooked by their chef while he was away often. This was found in a letter addressed to him as well and her chastity and loyalty were also major aspects of his administration his admiration for her not administration sorry um chastity was especially an important virtue in the roman world because it ensured that children were legitimate and that the brides were being faithful since calpurnia had been under strict supervision her purity and chastity would be ensured she was devastated when she had miscarried their children twice but due to his admiration for her pliny's love for his wife only grew deeper um this did not really affect their marriage at all even though bearing children was an important part of the roman life um he still stayed with her to the end she admired him as much as he admired her she states in a letter to him how courageous his own family is especially his father who died in a firestorm trying to save her own family and that's the other thing um pliny's father 
actually saved her family, well, tried to save her family from a firestorm. That's why she admired her husband so much, and that's why he had so much admiration for her because she was an orphan, and um, she was still brought up very well. She was the ideal Roman wife, um, regardless of what had happened to her family, regardless of the fact that she was an orphan. Um, he admired that her aunt raised her so well and um made her into a good wife <laughs> so it is difficult to understand the position of the young brides on the marriage of men who are twice their age and ways in which they adapt to the role of becoming both a mother and a wife but in Pliny's letters um, Pliny suggests that Calpurnia was able to quickly adapt to her role and in one of the letters which is addressed to her her aunt is descriptive of her behavior Notably, Pliny and Calpurnia's aunt were the same age and childhood friends. She was a family member that was instrumental in regards to their marriage, and the letter Pliny sends to her expresses his thanks, serving as a thank you letter. Now, the aunt's rearing of her niece is a source of success of the marriage between Pliny and Calpurnia. However, it is important to consider that Pliny lives in an age where there is an obsession with models and conventional behaviors. Therefore, the information provided in his letters can also be an idealized view on marriage. So obviously in history, when you're reading anything, um, it's important to not take everything well not to take everything like un not seriously but you have to take everything with a grain of salt because you have to keep in mind like they're trying to idealize everything that's going on in their lives to make themselves also appear better remember image is an important part of the society so obviously when he's writing in letters he's gonna be like oh my god my wife is the greatest my wife is the best she's like the model bride you know what i mean and i'm not saying this is untrue or it's not a fact that she was a model bride i'm just saying that um you do have to take things that they write with a grain of salt which like i said there, it's important to consider that Pliny lives in an age where there's an obsession with models and conventional behaviors. Um, therefore, the information provided in his letters could also be an idealized view on marriage on, based on how society views marriage and its rituals and traditions. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be the way his marriage with this individual was in actuality there's no evidence though that he had an, an unhappy marriage or that she wasn't the bride he claims she was but just saying that when anytime you're reading anything in history you have to keep in mind like oh how do these people behave why do they behave the way they do why are they saying what they're saying why are they writing this you know, um, just keep in mind how things are and why they would be writing the things that they are. And so um, there's no while there's no evidence that he would fabricate his own wife's exemplary qualities. It could happen. Um, and it's also an important consideration to make in analyzing any letter you read in history. So, Pliny's discourse of the ideal bride is essential in understanding Roman rituals and conventions. With that said, the
the bride was a product of her male counterparts. Even with discourses by women on the issues of the ideal Roman bride, these views are largely based through male perspectives because of the lack of works existing by women like Calpurnia, which state their feelings and thoughts on marrying at their age or moving so far from home with husbands twice their age. Of course, this was a norm. However, moving into new unfamiliar environments is nerve-wracking in itself. But it is inherently more difficult when there is a large age gap. Neither Calpurnia nor Pliny have suggested that they were miserable or even unhappy in the marriage. But it is important to understand that with the age gap came a sense of superiority, leading to the belief that at moments a relationship could resemble that of a father and his daughter. Now, while there are parameters in similar works such as these set by genre, these conventions arose out of male necessity as it seems the necessities of women during this period were not particularly important in the construction of state regulations surrounding Roman matronhood. With that said, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and I will catch you in the next one. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please, 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 please feel free to call in and ask them. I'm always happy to answer them. And like I said, I will catch you guys in the next episode of the 6 Minutes Podcast. Bye!